I was uh, singing that song, tearing up just a little bit. Uh, today's my mom's birthday. Texted her at 4.30 this morning and said, good morning, happy birthday. Now, she lives on the East Coast, so it's not that bad, okay? Didn't wake her up, it was 7.30. Um, but this was a song that she would sing to me when I was little, like when I was going to bed. Uh, she would sing, Jesus is the sweetest name I know, and then she would also sing, that one. That when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I want to read a little quote to you this morning, and you can either just close your eyes and sit back and allow the words um, to kind of reflect on them and allow them to wash over you, or you could kind of follow along as I read it, as it'll be on the screen, but it it is a quote or a section that really highlights this idea of grace in the light of his glory and grace. Uh, And maybe it can be a bit of a prayer for us this morning. Brendan Manning is the one we are quoting. He states this, When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt, I hope and I get discouraged, I love and I hate, I feel bad about feeling good, I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious, I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal, I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. The gospel of grace nullifies our adulation for televangelists, charismatic superstars, and local church heroes. It obliterates the two-class citizenship theory operative in many American churches. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. While there is much we may have earned, our degree, our salary, our home and garden, a Miller Light and a good night's sleep. All this is possible only because we have been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see and hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas and a heart to beat with love. We've been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is a sheer gift. It is not reward for our faithfulness, our generous disposition, or our heroic life of prayer. Even our fidelity as a gift, if we but turn to God, said St. Augustine, That itself is a gift of God. 
My deep awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Brennan Manning. Let's pray. God, may this be our deepest awareness this morning that we are deeply loved by Jesus Christ. That we are deeply loved by you, God, that Father, Son, and Spirit surrounds us. That the divine is present among us, that the kingdom is at hand. We revel in that grace. We are fully aware of your love. And may today be an example of that. May we live and receive it. May we acknowledge you in it. Today we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I share that Brendan Manning quote with you for a couple of reasons. One, because it's just a powerful reminder of the goodness and the grace of God. Another reason I share it with you is because uh, coming up this week, starting on Tuesday, we have a short uh, on Brendan Manning. It's four weeks long. It's on Tuesday evenings at 6.30. Uh, it is designed to bring a small community together uh, to wrestle with some of his readings, um, and to just to spend some time engaged in faith and pursuing growth in God. And it'll just be a fabulous time. I would encourage you to sign up. You can sign up online if you want more information. Matt Morris, who's like five or six rows back, just raised his hand. Uh, he will be leading the short on Tuesday nights. He would love to talk with you after the service and just like connect Uh, hear a little bit more about what that's going to be like and and how that community will form, but would love for you to participate in that. And again, it starts this Tuesday and goes for the next four weeks. Uh, Will you do me a favor as you are able, if you can get up, mingle, chat for a moment. Uh, We're just going to greet one another uh, before we get into the talk for this morning. I'm excited for us to spend a little bit of time in the scriptures this morning. Um, we are in a series on the book of Mark. We started it um, right in the, I think, in the summer, if my memory serves me correct, and we've been going for a while in it during Advent. We even looked at the Christmas story and Epiphany and everything surrounding Advent um, through kind of the lens of Mark as well. And uh, we're continuing there this morning. If you have a Bible with you or uh, it on your phone or any other device that you might have with you, if you could turn in the book to Mark chapter 8. We're going to go over the first like nine verses or so this morning, uh, taking a little bit of a different approach and excited about uh, where this will take us. I'm going to start by reading Mark 8 and then... um, we will jump in to more ideas surrounding the text. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him, him being Jesus, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away, And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? 
And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I uh, love the fact that I am a part of a community that has a deep love and respect for the Scriptures. In fact, I am becoming more and more convinced that what the world needs is a committed community of people that actually understand how to read the text, wrestle with the text, and then have lives that are transformed by the implications of that and by a changed understanding of who the divine is. And so I want to start this morning after looking at that passage with a quote by N.T. Wright that will kind of guide our time this morning. It says this, The sheer activity of reading Scripture, the conscious desire to be shaped informed with the purposes of God, is itself an act of faith, hope, and love, an act of humility and patience. It is a way of saying that we need to hear a fresh word, a word of grace, perhaps even a word of judgment as well as healing, warning as well as welcome. But the point is that reading the Bible is habit-forming. The more you do it, the more it will form the habits of mind and heart, of soul and body, which will slowly but surely form your character into the likeness of Christ. Now for me, the reason that quote stood out so much is I think it captures and embodies the very core values of new community. This idea of together, engage, become has been a long-standing desire for us as a community. And this particular quote speaks into that. What it speaks about is the desire to engage Scripture, the desire to engage with community, to wrestle with the text, to participate with the Spirit and with one another in activities that are habit-forming. I think it's also powerful because the goal of that quote is transformation. We don't engage just for the sake of engaging. We engage to be transformed, to be changed to become in more of our true selves and more of what it means to be formed into the image of Jesus. And I also love the fact that the quote speaks to this idea that that happens best in community. It happens best when we're together, learning together, having the Spirit speak to us individually as well as corporately. And so my goal for this morning is to kind of lean into that a bit. Um, to engage with the miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, and to really open a time for us to think, to discuss, to dwell on in dialogue with the text. My hope is that we can bring our collective imagination to the Scriptures in a way that will create learning and challenge and be very uh, applicational. Okay, so... What I'm hoping will transpire in the next few moments is that we'll be highly applicational 
Um, this is what it means, or this is the so what from the passage, as well as a bit of a dialogue, so that it's not just uh, me speaking at you. It's us collectively engaged in a bit of a conversation. My other hope is that instead of the talk being about 90% informational and 5% applicational, that we'll like kind of flip the numbers and have it be highly applicational, uh, because there really is not a ton about this story that needs deep explanation. It's pretty self-explanatory. There's some facts that happened in the story, but really the question becomes, what can that story do to change who we are and to change our understanding of who God is? And so I'm hoping for a little bit of uh, give and take. And uh, I know this is not a format that we have done recently, in part because it's one that I enjoy and I've been out for a little bit. And so, um, yeah, hopefully you missed it. Um, but in the next few moments, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to uh, look at the text again. You can look by yourself. You could look with a friend, uh, someone next to you. You could look, you know, shift over a pew and uh, get with someone, chat. But I'm going to give you a couple minutes to scribble down some ideas and really try to seek what are some applications that can come from this particular miracle that could be transformative for us. And we're going to go a little bit old school in the sense that if you have done any biblical interpretation, any study of the Bible, you probably have heard that we're going to do observation, interpretation, application, implementation. If you've not heard that before, those are some like um, Bible study 101, first year of college kind of uh, information. Maybe even in high school you got that. Observation, we're just going to observe what's happening in the text. Interpretation, what could that possibly mean for us? Then the application, the so what, what are the takeaways? How does that transform who we are? How does that transform our understanding of the divine? And then implementation, what are some ways that we can begin to apply this or live this out in our particular life? Uh, so by way of example, I'll just give you a really quick one. If you're reading the first line, uh, it reads like this. In Mark uh, chapter 1, in those days when again a great cloud or crowd had gathered. Here's a quick little example. Observation, the word again was used. Interpretation, we ask ourselves the question, why was it used? Well, because either a crowd had gathered again or a feeding had happened again. We know that the feeding of the 5,000 had happened just a few chapters before or in reality of life a couple weeks before. So it could be referring to that. So then what we're going to do is really begin to ask the so what. Why does that matter? Does that have any bearing on our life or our understanding of God? I'm going to ask you over the next two minutes, start writing stuff down, talk with a friend, talk with a neighbor, think about any so what's in the entire passage, and then we'll toss them out and we'll dialogue and see where it takes us. Okay? Two minutes on the clock. Go. All right, <clears throat> we will um, open it up for what are some potential applications, some ways that we can understand this text, what it might be saying to us that's practical. Uh, another way to say that, or what are some aha moments, something that stood out to you like, aha, wow, that's interesting, um, that's powerful, or that could be transformative. 
Um, this is the part where we have to trust and believe that the Spirit is present with us, and um, there are no wrong answers. Well, I mean, there may be some wrong answers, but for the most part, just, you know, uh, feel free to share um, anyone. Go for it. It took him a long time to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus had to point it out to him. It took him a long time. I mean, we're talking, here's one of the interesting things about this passage and the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000, many experts would assume, is probably closer to the 15, 20,000 people uh, that were being fed, in part because they typically only counted the men. Um, so this group of 4,000 could have been 8,000 to 10 to 12,000, depending. Uh, so it's really fascinating, which would take quite a bit of time for 12 disciples to get the food out. And uh, also, the idea that that many people ate and were satisfied is pretty, uh, pretty uh, insane. Someone else, what's another observation? Some application. Yeah, yeah. Many of the people that uh, were amongst the crowd were not wealthy or well-off. Um, it, it does say something, and this is an interesting thing to kind of wrestle with, maybe talk with your small group or some friends about uh, around coffee, would be, uh, why is it that Jesus seemed to attract the people that uh, had need? And why is it that our churches throughout the world, especially America, tend to attract maybe the opposite at times, right? Um, but the poor, the needy, those that felt ashamed, didn't feel like they belonged, those that were on the outskirts of society, the marginalized, yeah. Uh, it's a powerful thing for us to begin to wrestle with. And what are the implications then for us? And how do we live that out? What does it mean? Who are we supposed to be engaging with? Yeah, that's great, great observation. What else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this text is really uh, fascinating because what it describes is uh, Christ's compassion. Uh, not only his compassion, but his provision. Um, it, I, that's one that uh, really stood out to me is that, that Christ, the text says that he felt this compassion. And the compassion... Um, when you like dig into what that actually means or what it's trying to get at, is it means that he felt to his very guts, the very core, so they believe that it didn't go to your heart like I feel in my heart for you. It's I feel in my bowels for you, which is maybe less cool on a Valentine's card, you know, that whole, um, like I just write in my gut for you. Um, but anyhow, <clears throat> that's, that's really what it meant to the very like insides uh, which, if you think about it, sometimes that is where we uh, hold tension. We like get sick to our stomach about something. Like Jesus was sick to his stomach with compassion because he saw a need and wanted to address it. He wanted to figure out what to do about it. And uh, what's so interesting is that compassion obviously is driven by this deep and profound love that Brennan Manning was talking about before, right? Like if God didn't just in crazy stupid ways love you as much as God loves you, there would be 
really nothing within this divine that I have to offer in a way that would make God desire to love me and pour out to me. But he has this deep, powerful love. Brendan Mannion made this statement. I wrote it down here in my notes. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. And if you think about the things that we often try to identify ourselves with, or the things that we maybe feel about ourselves, sometimes we are our own worst enemy, right? We're the ones that like thinks the negative thoughts and it's the negative self-talk about who we are or why we can't do what we want to do or you get the idea, right? <clears throat> and yet the, that is all illusion because the only identity that actually matters is this identity that God desperately loves you. That God is passionately in love with you, that he has a complete and full love for you. And so much so that the text tells us that Jesus in this context, in the feeding of the 5,000, that that love, that compassion, compelled provision, right? It, it, it moved him to say, we've got to do something about it. It's got to change the circumstances for people. And so he began to meet the needs, right? He met all the needs. Um, and so for many of us, maybe, what we need is, again, a reminder that God is deeply and passionately in love with you. And that love causes a desire within God to want to provide, right? And so do we believe that? And what are the implications of that for us? And then are there circumstances in life that are compelling us to our guts that make us want to extend love and grace and provision to others? Good. Good. Someone else? What's another? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So if you didn't hear that, God's provision was extravagant that there was leftovers. So the text tells us that uh, they ate and were satisfied. Uh, so if you've ever, you know, gone to a restaurant and you sat down and then you ate and then you kind of like go, oh my word. Like, it's kind of like that Thanksgiving feeling where you're like, I might have to unbuckle my pants just a little bit because it ju I'm just so full, right? Like it, it just so satisfied. This was provision not only to satisfaction, but then there was abundance, right? There was leftovers. There was more. Um, what I think is interesting, if you compare this to the feeding of the 5,000, um, what you'll notice is that there was seven basketful in this particular story, right? And seven being the biblical number for perfection or fullness or completeness. So in some ways, the way you can interpret or understand it would be that not only did God provide, God provided to satisfaction, but then God provided to completeness or fullness. Like, it more than enough, abundantly, um, which is a really powerful thing. And if you realize that the people that are in this particular story are more of the Gentiles, you realize like he's saying, for all of people, there is a completeness or fullness to my provision. If you go back to the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 basketfuls left. That was to the primarily Jewish audience. 
And it would make sense then that the 12 baskets represent the 12 tribes, which means that God is saying, I have enough provision for every single tribe within the nation, for any and everybody, and in abundance, right? So you see this theme throughout Scripture that God is not just the God that loves you, not just the God that provides for you, but a God that wants to do that lavishly or to completeness or fullness, uh, which is a really, really powerful thing. And again, each one of these that you're, you're like sharing with us, each one that's like coming out of the text, are ones that you could go, man, I need to go home and think on that more. Like I need to wrestle with, do I actually believe God's provision is complete? Do I actually believe that he will provide? Do I actually believe that what he is providing is enough? Like a lot, a lot to wrestle with. Good. Someone else, what's uh, another observation, something that stood out, some way of applying? Yeah. Yeah. If you didn't hear that, um, the observation is made that Jesus invites everyone to sit down, right? And that, that in some way shows a complete attention and a dependence of the crowd on what Christ is going to say. Like there's this, I'm waiting to find out what the teacher has to offer. Um, it probably also implies this willingness in the midst of hunger, in the midst of tired, um, to, to sit, right? And, the, and what I mean by that is um, he causes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters, right? But that is the good work he does in the midst of, as Psalm 23 talks about, like the peril, right? Good. Someone else, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a, the question is, why did Jesus wait three days? Um, I mean, obviously my answer is mere speculation. I don't know for sure. Uh, but I would, I would surmise that people likely brought food with them. People were on a journey or they were following Jesus, so there's a chance that they had some supplies, but those would be dwindling quickly. Um, so maybe it was when realizing the full extent and their desire to be around for a long time and his continued teaching, then it was like, we need to do something about this. We're in a, as the text describes, a desolate place. And so meeting the need in that moment, that's my best speculation. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you couldn't hear the um, example, really, of Jesus in his action, it wasn't just about the provision, but it was in some ways, um, if I'm hearing this correct, it was the deep compassion or love that motivated it, not the attention that such action would receive, right? So in Philippians 2, even, Jesus uh, is described as being willing to set aside all the grandeur, all, all the everything that the kingdom has to offer, and is willing to humble himself and become one like a baby, but then humble himself for the cross and to serve, right? Even that illustration of washing the disciples' feet is an illustration of saying that I'm here to do the work of the ministry. I'm here to meet the needs of the people. I'm not here for the adulation, for the attention um, that sometimes comes with such action. Yeah, that's good. Absolutely. Yeah, he used the disciples to implement the action, right? So here's, here's something that I think we've got to be captured by. God does not need us, period, right? 
He doesn't need us for a relationship. He's got a perfect relationship in the Trinity. Doesn't need us for that. Instead, opens the Trinity as an opportunity to engage with the world, right? To, to welcome in to this dance of love. Okay, so that's a beautiful thing. But he doesn't need us to accomplish anything within the world. At any moment, he could just say, this is what needs to happen and it'll happen, right? But he divinely chooses to participate with us or allow us to participate with God in the work of the ministry, right? In the very action of care. So could any of the disciples actually multiply the bread and the fish or the food? Probably not. But what they were able to do is participate with what they had to offer. So I have bread and there's some fish. And God does something with the little that you have to offer, but wants and desires participation. I would say that one of the things lacking in the church across the nation is participation in the work of the kingdom. And what I mean by that is not just the passage that says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will provide workers because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. That's true, always has been. Unfortunately, probably always will be. I mean it more in the sense that um, that there are a lot of people participating in the um, religious community as a, a way of like taking or receiving, but it's not participatory in a way that what they have to offer is offered back to the community of faith or to the surrounding city. Like you're not here just for yourself, and I know you know that. You're here for this community. You're here for this city. You've been divinely placed in this time and space with a calling to participate, to be involved, to be a part of the work of the kingdom, uh, to join in with God in his creative work. That's been the call from the beginning, right? In Genesis, we find the first thing that we're given is this care of creation, this idea of being co-creators with God. You can participate with God from the start. And that translates to today. So one of the questions probably we need to ask ourselves is, what do you have to offer? Because the text doesn't say that, that uh, he went around looking for the chef or looking for the person who had all the skills to make something or for the really rich or affluent person to be able to provide the resources. He's like, what do you have? What do you have on hand? Because whatever you have, if you offer that, I can use it, Right? And so it isn't for the professionals. It isn't for those that uh, are accomplished or experienced. It's for everybody. All of us are called to participate. Other applications, ideas, yeah. Bingo. Okay, so if you didn't hear that, um, I would t title this as Don't Forget God's Faithfulness. Right? Don't forget God's faithfulness. So what you're alluding to is the story that happened... Uh, some would say about two, three weeks before a feeding of 5,000. So again, 20,000 people are there. God feeds all of them, 12 basketfuls left over, right? Then we come two, three weeks later. We're in the same kind of scenario, a crowd. Hey, what do you have? Oh, coincidentally, you have fish and loaves again. Awesome, right? We've been here. We've done this. I, I, can, I can handle it. No big deal, right? And what you notice is the disciples are like, I don't know what to do. Now think about it. Just rewind three weeks. 
Just imagine yourself in a place with 20,000 people sitting there. So like Spokane Arena, I don't even know how many get seats, but let's say 20,000 people are sitting in one location, listening, talking, being there for days. They run out of food. And you, there's a little boy that's like, I've got five loaves and two fish. And fish isn't like, you know, a big grouper. It's like just a couple sardines, small And you see God expand that and feed 20,000 people to fullness, have 12 basketfuls left over, you would think that that would be seared in your mind. You would think that without a shadow of a doubt, you'd be like, yeah, I've seen this before. This is less people. This is more food to start with. Like, this is a no-brainer. We don't need to send anybody anywhere. You're going to do this thing again, right? The water to wine, this is going to be even better. But instead, you see them falter, right? You see them go, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to solve the problem. And it, the cynical side of me goes, how dumb are the disciples? Like, how stupid do you have to be to see that and then have doubt to wonder if it could happen again? That's so crazy. And just when I'm tempted to think to myself, they are so dumb, I think to myself, how dumb am I? How many times has God provided for me in a moment where I knew I could not provide for myself? And then two weeks later, I'm like, oh no, I don't know what we're going to do, right? Over and over. That might be your story too. That God provides in deep faithfulness for something. And then two weeks later, something that's smaller than the thing that was just provided hits you and you're like overwhelmed, stressing, sad, frustrated, wondering what, it, what possibly is going to happen. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the story of God's people from the beginning. It's always been that story. We have no food to eat. God gives manna. Wake up the next morning. No food. What are we going to do? It just came from the heavens. They go, we got no water. You left us out here to die. God goes, water out of a rock. They start drinking. A couple weeks later, no water. We're all going to perish. We'd be better off in Egypt. Oh my goodness. Right? We want a king. They get a king. We're not satisfied with the king. Then they go through the period of judges. We're going to be faithful to God. No, we're not going to be faithful to God. Then we're going to be faithful. It's like whiplash, the whole Old Testament, right? We come to the New Testament and it's like, we don't know what's going to happen. And then God shows up in the person of Jesus and on the scene. And then we see miracles and then we still go, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do, right? That's my story. That's the people of Israel. There's a likelihood that it's your story as well at some level. I think what we need to do is maybe practice the art of remembering, right? To practice the art of remembering, to write down what are some things recently that God has provided for you that that you need to express gratitude for. Because as we express gratitude for those things, what tends to happen is it becomes easier for us to remember them which then tends to mean that the next time we're in a situation 
we respond with gratitude and anticipation of what God will do this next time, right? There's this excitement that kind of builds. Um, so let's be, be sure to remember the faithfulness of God. Remember how God continues to show up for you. We'll do one more. Yeah. Yeah. If you didn't hear that, um, Christ does not appear in the text in any way to shame them, to shame the disciples, be like, oh my goodness, guys, you're so stupid. Right? To, to say, I can't believe your lack of faith or whatever. He just responds again with provision, with love, with grace. And when we shame ourselves, right, it does not benefit us toward remembering. It does not benefit us towards gratitude. It does not put us in a space where we're ready to receive what God might have for us this next time. I want to end with one other idea that I think this text could cause us to wrestle with a little bit. Um, And I'll start with this quote. The most fatal illusion is a settled point of view. And the reason I bring that up is because I think a lot of times when it comes to the miracles or when it comes to the teaching of Jesus, we go, oh yeah, feeding the 5,000, I figured that out. I know exactly what it means. I know all the applications. I know everything that it could possibly teach me. Um, And so really it's a lack of faithfulness. That's Sermon 101. If you go to a church, you're going to hear that, right? Or it's God's provision, God's love, you know, God's desire for you to participate and be served. Like all these things we're describing are absolute, powerful applications for us to live out. But sometimes our mind stops there and we don't continue to wrestle with what the text might be communicating or challenging us with. And so I want to just add one other layer that you can kind of take from here um, as a chance to to see the disciples in a different light. So instead of seeing the disciples as people who lacked faith, who didn't believe that God could fulfill the same thing they did a couple weeks ago, there may be a different consideration. So, group of 5,000 people, 20,000 plus, all Jewish primarily, right? Jewish community, Jewish village, Everybody there, large crowd, would have been Jewish background, Jewish descent. Jesus performs the miracle, 12 baskets, 12 left over, fullness or completeness for the people of Israel. The disciples go, absolutely makes total sense. Two, three weeks later, they're in a Greek area. Almost everyone that would have been there would have been Gentile. None would have been from the people of Israel. So is it possible? Is it possible that The disciples did not think God was incapable of doing the miracle that God had just done two weeks, three weeks before. Is it possible that they simply thought that God just wouldn't have done it for this group of people? What I mean by that is we think that for the Jewish people, it makes total sense that God would have done it. God's chosen people. He's going to provide for his people. He says he always will. You get to this Greek-Gentile group of people, and it is possible that they thought, yes, God loves his children, God would do anything for his children. This problem is that these people just aren't his children. These people just aren't the ones that are included, right? So I think the disciples may have known that Jesus could do the miracle, 
They just assumed that he wouldn't. They just assumed that this group of people was outside of the line, the boundary, the extension of God's grace. And I think Jesus has a way of messing with our assumptions. He's a way of like wrestling with what we've always assumed to be true and asking us to reorient our thinking and perhaps understand it a little bit differently. It might be why Jesus continued to bring up things like, who is your neighbor? And if you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, it's not the Jewish priest. It's not the Levite. It's not the religious person. It's this lowly Samaritan that's an outcast, that's a half-breed that doesn't fit in, that becomes the hero of the story. Or, story of Jesus inviting all the guests to a wedding, and all of the people that are in, all the ones that are supposed to accept the invitation, all the ones that are the good religious folks, the people that do everything right, all of them reject the invitation. So he's got this huge banquet, nobody's coming. And so what does he do? He goes to all the poor, all the outcasts, all the marginalized, and welcomes them in for the huge banquet. It isn't the people that we all thought would be there. It's a whole different group of people he invites in, right? Or you look at uh, foreigners that are welcomed, right? The Ethiopian eunuch is welcomed. If you look at um, Peter, giant sheet comes down in this dream, and it's like you can eat any of the food you shouldn't be able to eat. And he's like, what? Everybody's included? Like, that's a weird thing to come out of that, but that's what he concludes, right? Everyone's included. Everybody's in, right? Everybody is open to the grace of God. And if you think about this story in that way, it gives us eyes to maybe see another layer, another application, another way of wrestling with the text, where we might have to ask, who's included that I didn't think was before? Or who is the grace of God need to be extended to in a way that makes it very real for them to understand? And how do I participate in that? What does it mean for us as a community? In each of these, my hope, and I do think the Spirit was present in a way that was reminding us of all of these truths and challenging us, my hope is this, that you can walk away with one of those things. There were probably ten that we tossed out this morning. Walk away with one, journal about it, think about it, talk to a friend about it, wrestle with it. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for your small group? What does it mean for your family? What does it mean for your community? And then implement it. Don't just be a doer or a hearer of the word, be a doer also. So take that thing and say, how do I infuse this into my life in a way that leaves me changed? Because I think the scriptures do that in a profound way and they invite us into this ever-present reality. Would you stand with me? We're going to conclude with a benediction. Benediction comes out of Colossians 3. And it is my prayer over us as a community. New community. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week.